Hey, City family. Pastor Russ here again, and like you, I am basking in the glory of Marcy Autry's first day uh, doing the announcements. Um, she has some big shoes to fill. We're real thankful for her doing that. Also want to make sure, if you haven't, uh, if you didn't hear it, uh, that next Sunday, 10 a.m. at Conger Park, uh, we will be beginning uh, live worship uh, services again. Uh, we will be wearing masks and we will be either live streaming or recording and airing later on Facebook. We'll talk, we'll, we'll give you some more information about that. Um, but very excited uh, should the weather hold. And if it doesn't, you can uh, look for us here at the same uh, spot and then in the same way. Um, but we can pray to that end that we'll be able to see each other uh, next Sunday at Conger Park, 10 a.m. Uh, as we begin today, I want to uh, say what an honor it is. I never want to get too far uh, afield of this. Uh, what an honor it is to open up the word of the Lord with you. And I pray that you would uh, uh, just take a moment to kind of center yourself here uh, for us to hear from the Lord. Let's take a moment and pray and seek him as, 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 um, as he seeks us in Jesus name we come to you Lord and we say thank you we want to praise you we want to recognize that we are made for worship we are made for it and we try to if it's not you that's on the throne we will put any number of things on the throne and worship those things and so Lord we repent of our idols this morning. We repent of our false worship this morning, and we give you our hearts today. Lord, would you speak to us, Lord? We need you. We need you in these times, these confusing days. We need to hear your voice, Lord Jesus. Would you speak with clarity? Would you show us what it means to follow you? Would you show us what it means to take you seriously? And would you show us what it means to sit at your feet? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we continue today to meditate together on what it means to truly place ourselves at the feet of Jesus. We have discovered uh, that there are many in the gospel accounts who found themselves at the feet of Jesus uh, for a number of reasons, but whether they knew it at the time or not, with rare exception, <laughs> um, they found that it was the place that they needed to be. Martha was after Mary to help with the chores, but Mary knew that she needed to get to the feet of Jesus. The other disciples were cowering in the corners of the boat, but Peter knew that he needed to get to the feet of Jesus. The friends of the paralyzed man knew that they needed to get their friend to the feet of Jesus, and they weren't going to let crowds or architecture get in their way. And that's what we're striving for, brothers and sisters. We are striving for the frame of mind, the frame of heart that drives us always to the feet of Jesus, sitting under his tutelage, sitting under his wisdom, listening for his voice with hands that are willing and able to obey, feet that are willing to follow where he leads. We want to be a people in this world who are known for listening for the words of Jesus, for a people who take those words seriously, for being a people who would take him at his word, as the old song says, and adjust our lives according to that word. As difficult as it may be, as uncomfortable as it may be, 
Last week we talked about the uh, we talked about the Apostle John and the moments uh, that he spent at the feet of Jesus as he hung on the cross. Um, and we're going to return to the cross this week, and we're going to look for a moment at the life of an unlikely character also found at the feet of Jesus as he suffered his last on the hill called Calvary. So if you would, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And to put this in context, let's read from verse 45 on to verse 54. Hear now the word of the Lord. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabbathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and filled it with wine and vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split. And the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today we're going to be looking at the uh, the life of, or, well, not the life, the uh, <laughs> this moment in the life of uh, the nameless Roman centurion that's mentioned here. In uh, in this account, in Matthew's account, it, it mentions those that are with him, that are under his command, uh, also sharing in this revelation, but in some of the other uh, gospel accounts, it just mentions him by himself. Um, we're going to be looking at this moment in his life. He only has one line of dialogue in this uh, passion play, uh, but it is a big line. It's an important line. It's one line that could not be more powerful, honestly. It's a line that contains true insight, insight into reality, into insight into the way things really actually are. And so before we can appreciate the gravity of his statement, we need to spend a little bit of time getting to know the man who spoke it because it will tell us a little bit about why he is uniquely placed uh, to speak this word uh, and understand its weight. Uh, the distinction of centurion is a descriptor of rank. Uh, Matthew joins in the testimony of the other gospel writers and that he says that this is a Roman centurion, not just a random Roman soldier who speaks these profound words at the foot of the cross. Now, why, why is that important? I think it's important 
because the centurion is a man who understands authority. The centurion is a rank in the Roman army that is uh, in a place that can understand well what it means to be in charge and to be uh, one who is under the charge of another. See, the centurion was responsible for a company of about 100 men, hence the, uh, the cent in centurion, like the cent in century. This was the uh, highest rank among what we would today call, uh, call uh, enlisted soldiers. That is to say, he was not an officer. Uh, you, 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 even in, in our army, you, know, you, you ascend from private up to, up to uh, sergeant. And then after that, you get into colonel and general and all those kind of things. But the, those, are, those are officers. Uh, and below sergeant is the enlisted. Uh, but the, uh, in the Roman army, the officer ranks were reserved for those of aristocratic blood. You had to be born into certain families to, be, to even qualify to be um, uh, in those upper officer ranks. But from sergeant on down, from centurion on down, uh, those lower ranks were made up of common uh, people. But uh, the centurion being at the highest rank and really kind of right in the middle of these two classes of soldiers. The centurion was well respected by all, uh, by those below him in rank. They respected him because he was a warrior. He would lead his men into war. He was not gonna be sitting back. He was not gonna be in the bunker uh, uh, making plans and sending people out to fight. He would be out there on the front lines fighting with his men. And so he had the respect of those whom he commanded, who were under his command, his lead. Uh, he was also respected by those whom he was responsible to, whom he was uh, under um, in rank, because he had, he had because because they had they know that this this centurion has risen from the the bottom of the ranks because of talent and intelligence and work ethic. Common men did not rise to the rank of centurion unless they showed unusual competency and ability uh, because they'd be, have to be both administrators and warriors. They need to be able to manage a budget and lead their company into battle. It was a unique position uh, and, and the centurion is uniquely then placed as one who functions both in authority and under authority at the same time. He is in charge and under the charge of others. He understands what it means to be in charge. He understands what it takes to be in charge. He recognized, and therefore he knows how, to, how important it is to recognize uh, those in charge over him and respond to their authority. And that's why the centurion has the insight to stand at the feet of Jesus and declare, surely he was the son of God. Because he is a man who understands authority. See, so we need to be really clear here about what exactly this statement is that the centurion makes at the foot of the cross. It's a declaration. It's a de declaration of who really is in charge. Who really is in charge at this moment that we find at 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon at the place they call the skull? Now, in any in, in, uh, uh, looking around this scene, a person of lesser insight might say that the Romans are in charge here. 
the centurion himself might be holding the hammer that drove the nails into the hand of Christ. Why wouldn't he say that he's in charge here? Why wouldn't he say that his people are in charge here? Why wouldn't he say that the Roman army is in charge here? I don't think that anybody at the foot of the cross in the moment would deny that. Even those who were there in support of Jesus, John, the Marys, if you asked them, they would have told you with tears in their eyes, if you asked them who was in charge here, they would say the empire, the Romans, we do as they will. It was the empire to the naked eye that had the victory out Golgotha on Friday afternoon. And yet this centurion seems to be able to see on this Friday something that others won't see until Sunday coming. And that's that this is a victory today on Friday that cannot last. We'll unpack that more later, but this we need to understand. This is a statement of who is really in charge who is ultimately in charge here on the hill called Calvary. Okay, so we'll talk more about this declaration later, but let me just pause here and point something out interesting. If Jesus' ministry ends here uh, at the foot of the cross with a declaration of who is in charge, this is a declaration at the end of his ministry, um, Jesus' ministry also begins with a declaration of who is in charge. These are bookends in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Two declarations of who is in charge. So if we consider, surely is the Son of God to be the benedictory statement of Jesus' ministry, then what would we consider to be the introductory statement of his ministry? Well, it's easy to find out. We flip back a few pages uh, in even the book of Matthew. We can Flip back to uh, Matthew chapter 4. And when Jesus comes out of the wilderness and is tested in the wilderness, the first red-letter words that come out of the mouth of Jesus as he uh, uh, emerges from that test are these. Uh, As it says in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, and here's what he would preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is a way of saying this is a characterization of how Jesus saw his ministry. Repent, or his message at least. Repent because the kingdom of God has come near. This is the introductory statement of his ministry. And the benedictory statement is, surely he was the son of God. Uh, 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 Your translation may say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's like where your hand is, it's close at hand. We need to understand this as a declaration of who is in charge. This is Jesus saying who is in charge. The simplest way uh, to understand this statement is like Jesus starting his ministry by putting up a sign in the window of the world that says under new management. Now, why would a restaurant or another show, you know, another store bother to put up an under new management sign? If the name on the door isn't changing, then who cares? Why bother with letting people know that there's new owners in charge. Well, you don't have to let people know that there's new owners in charge unless the old owners, the old managers made a mess of things. 
and then putting up an under new management sign is a way of saying, if you've had a bad experience in here in the past, we want you to know that those responsible for that bad experience have been put out. And now everything's gonna be run differently. New policies, new standards, maybe a whole new menu. This restaurant is not what it used to be. It might look the same on the outside, but it is not the same place. It's under new management. That's probably the simplest way to understand what Jesus means when he says, repent, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom is under new management. The world is under new management. But I also like to say, like the way that Walter Brueggemann talks about this in his commentary on this passage when he says this. The statement is, in this statement, it is as though Jesus came to pronounce the end of colonialism. He is taking down the old flag of the empire and he is sending the governors of the empire packing. So if you can imagine Jesus saying, repent because the kingdom of God is near. You occupying powers, you colonial entities, I am taking down your flag and I'm putting up a new banner. And I'm sending the governors of the old empire packing. Now, if that's the case, if that indeed is what Jesus is saying, then how did the governors of empire at his time, at that time, Think about Jesus' declaration that his kingdom is coming and their kingdom was passing away. Well, the Roman governors paid it little mind. They didn't care about the delusions of some uh, itinerant preacher. They cared about order and the Roman peace, and that's all. So when Jesus stirred things up to the point that it caused them problems, they put him down. But in the meantime, when Jesus said he was bringing a new kingdom to bear, their, pro their response was basically, who cares? You are irrelevant, Jesus. Now, the Roman uh, uh, governors were not the only governors in authority um, in Jesus' time. There was another set of governors operating. The Pharisees sent the religious government or, or, or were the religious government of the Jews that had a different reaction to Jesus' declaration that their kingdom was coming to an end. And his was taking its place. They said, who are you? Under Multiple times they say, under what authority do you say these things? You have no credentials. You have no authority. You cannot declare that the kingdom of God is at hand. You are unqualified, Jesus. So Jesus begins his ministry with the declaration, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdoms of this world are passing away. A new kingdom is coming. I'm in charge now. New management. And the governors of the kingdoms of the world say, "You." their response to that is, you are irrelevant and you are unqualified. Now, let's just pretend for a moment that that bothered Jesus. Let's pretend for a moment in a fantasy world that Jesus had a good, put together a PR team. And they said to him, Jesus, your numbers are in the tank. 
These powers that be are not taking your candidacy seriously. What you need to do is to set up some power meetings. They're gonna raise the profile of your ministry, get some endorsements from important influencers, and pretty soon they're not gonna be able to call you irrelevant or unqualified anymore. So what does Jesus do? Well, he takes a bunch of meetings. And in fact, we can flip in our copy of Matthew from this statement in Matthew 4 all the way back to this, uh, the state, our, our text for today in Matthew 27. And we can go through chronologically. I actually did this. Uh, let me pull it up real quick. Uh, made a little chronological list of all the meetings that Jesus took if you will, uh, in this time with people from Matthew 4 to Matthew 27. He starts off with a meeting with a couple of day laborers and fishermen. Power meeting? Influencers? Okay. Maybe he's off to a bad start. Then he meets with several sick people. Uh, then he meets with some more sick people. Then he meets with a leper. Then he meets with a slave. And then he meets with two demon-possessed men, and then a paralyzed man, and then a task collector that everybody hates. Then he meets with a little dead girl who ends up not being dead anymore after he meets with her. Then he meets with a woman that's been sick for 12 years. He then meets with two blind men. He then meets with a mute guy, and he does take a meeting with Moses and Elijah, who are pretty you know, heavy hitters. But, he, but the thing is, is he tells the, the witnesses of the meeting, not to tell anybody that it took place so he doesn't get any credit for it until it's written down later in the Bible. And then we, and then after that, he uh, meets with two blind men. Then he meets with a prostitute. And lastly, he eats dinner with his 12 disciples, one of which is a traitor and 10 of which are about to abandon him. Right. Now, now we are in an election season here. God help us. We are deciding, Lord Jesus, who is going to be in charge. And endorsements are important to these candidates. Every meeting those candidates take is important. Who they meet with is who they're seen with, who they take pictures with. <laughs> those people define their platform. They represent what's important to the candidate. Now, Jesus is no politician. He's not running for office. But who he meets with in the Gospels, who he works with, who he spends time with. They define his platform. They tell the world what's important to him. So from the first day of his ministry to the last day on the cross, Jesus meets with those that he chooses to define what's important to him. And those people that he chooses happen to be those that the governors consider to be irrelevant incompetent, broken down, marginalized, broken, powerless, unpopular, and unqualified, just like him. So if they thought he was irrelevant and unqualified before, they only thought that more so by the time he got to the cross. And, after, and, and, and being a company man, the centurion agreed with this assessment. See, Jesus claimed to the centurion, when he gets sent to the centurion, First to get flogged, and then to be prepared for crucifixion. When he gets sent to the centurion, who would have been over that whole process, okay? Jesus' claim to be in charge was a source of humor for the centurions and for those under his command. 
They took extra care to humiliate him based on his claim to be in charge. They said, you think you're a king? Let's give him a crown of thorns. And they pressed it down on his head until the blood flowed down. Let's, let's strip him of his clothes and just put a purple sash around him so he'll be naked in public, basically. But he'll have this purple color like that of a royal person because he thinks he's a royal person. He thinks he's in charge. He thinks he's a king. Let's put a sign over his head on a cross, the cross that's reserved for, uh, 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 for enemies of, of the empire, the cross that's refer, you know, reserved for criminals. And we'll say, here, here hangs the king of the Jews. That's, that's, that's where the centurion is before Jesus is crucified. That's where the centurion is on the way out to the cross. That's where the centurion is when he nails those nails into Jesus' hands. When Jesus is lifted up over the course of the three hours that he's on the cross, some things happen that get the centurion's attention. Do you remember us reading those? Beginning in verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. The sun goes dark from noon to three. That'll get your attention. When Jesus died, uh, later on down in verse 51, it records that the temple itself is shaken. The curtain is torn. There's earthquakes all around. The rocks are split wide open. Not just the ground, but the rocks on top of the ground. And then... I don't know if you caught this. This isn't in every um, uh, uh, gospel account. Look at verse 52. The tombs broke open. That's not surprising with the earthquakes. But what happens? The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. So you get the sense that, that, that these, <laughs> these bodies came to life when Jesus died. The tombs were shaken and they walked out of them. And then, and then they kind of hung around there in the tombs until Jesus' resurrection. And then they came out and, and, and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Isn't that crazy? So when the centurion sees all this, he repents. He changes his mind. See, repentance is just a 180-degree turn where you come into agreement with Jesus. He repents and he says, you are the king and your kingdom is at hand. This surely is the son of God. He, when he sees all this, he repents because he recognizes authority when he sees it. He's uniquely placed to understand authority. And when he sees it, he's uniquely placed to understand who is in charge and what needs to happen if someone else is in charge. He recognizes that a new king has come and that the grave would not hold this king very long. If anything, this is a part of his plan. So try to put yourself, see, here's the thing. This is an amazing moment for the centurion. You talk about three hours of craziness. Try to put yourself in this man's shoes and understand what it would be like to realize over the course of three hours that the kingdom you have dedicated your whole life to is coming to an end. The centurion, who, who this, this centurion 
it would be one who believes in the empire. He's, he's, he's risen through the ranks. He is going to retire here. This is one who believes in what the empire does. He believes in the kingdom of the Caesars. He believes in this kingdom that he has seen conquer bigger and bigger parts of the world. Um, and they've done so with superior technology and superior weaponry, superior philosophy in their opinion, superior engineering, superior organization. They saw themselves as bringing civilization to the world. It was their moral imperative. And if it meant enslaving people, then that was just a byproduct of bringing something good to them, bringing civilization to them, bringing the Pax Romana. This kingdom, this kingdom that he believed in, the kingdom of the Caesars, was a noble kingdom full of noble senators, wise governors, brilliant generals, brave warriors in his estimation. And they're all led by this mighty Caesar who's half God and half man. This kingdom, this the greatest kingdom that the world has ever seen. Can you imagine? That's what he thinks about the Roman Empire. Can you imagine on that Friday afternoon how the centurion felt over the course of three hours when he came to understand that this mighty kingdom was going to have to bow to a superior one. And that superior kingdom was a kingdom of slaves and sick people, minimum wage workers, prostitutes, little kids, and a bunch of folks that used to be dead all led by an irrelevant, unqualified, itinerant preacher who was not, <coughs> he was not half God and half man, but somehow all God and all man at the same time. Now that'll mess with your mind, right? That will mess with your mind. I'm talking about turning your life over, turning your life upside down in a matter of three hours. That'll mess with you. But you understand that, right? I mean, this happened to you, right? Christian. This happened to me, right? When you and I came to understand that the kingdom that we had invested so much in was coming to an end, that the, that the Caesars that you and I have been serving uh, are not good for us and new management is coming in to take over. You remember that moment, right? You remember that moment in recognizing the authority of Christ and that it was ultimate, permanent. You remember that, don't you? And that the, the, the false God that you had on the throne of your life was gonna have to be deposed so that the real king could take his place. You remember that, you remember that that, that messing with your mind, right? You remember what it's like to, to realize that the flag you've been saluting all these years is the flag of a colonizing power that doesn't have your best interest at heart, right? And Jesus has come to tear that flag down and raise a new banner of love up over your head. Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember how that messed with your mind? Do you remember that's, that's hard, but you realize it had to happen. Don't you remember what it was like to realize that the values of this new kingdom ran pretty much opposite to the values of the kingdom you grew up in and that you invested in and that all that you peep, all that the people that you grew up being told were losers were the closest friends of the new king? You remember that moment, right? 
If not, don't feel alone. Most of us don't. <clears throat> because most of us not can only claim, you know, to understand, you know, or to see this in as a, as a characteristic, as a commonality in American Christianity. Most of us have been taught how to just paint a layer of Jesus shellac over the bones of our own Roman Empire, whatever it was. See, here in America and, and, and in the American gospel that we've been given, the American church that we've been given, and I'm not saying this universally, just it's very common, is this. Like Constantine, we have just painted some crosses on our shields and then gone back to war, gone back to the business of building the empire that we were building before, all the while now, the only change being calling it the work of the kingdom. It's like the opposite of that situation where the name of the place stays the same, but there's a new management uh, uh, sign in the window. It's like the opposite. It's, it, it, it's like there's no new management, but the name on the door has changed. That's how we've been taught to, to add Christianity to our lives. See, we still love the Caesars. We, love, we still love what the Caesars love in our lives. We hate what the Caesars hate. We love the people that the Caesar loves. We hate the people that the Caesars tell us to hate. Okay? Let me give you an extreme example of this kind of uh, American Jesus shellac that we put over... Um, uh, um, and a, a, a mentality of empire, all right? Our commitment to empire. Um, this is taken from a social media post that someone took a snapshot of and sent to me. I, I hate to really even um, put this out there further than it's already gone, but uh, this is what it says. It says, God's justice is relentlessly merit-based. Jesus is the ultimate capitalist, and he would rather see you burn in hell than give you what you need unless you confess that you don't deserve what you need from him. If you hate capitalism, you very likely will hate Christ. Now, if you hate capitalism, you will hate Christ? Now, there is some Jesus shellac over the bones of the empire right there. Wouldn't you agree? Now, that's an extreme case, but this is a danger for all of us, and it is a danger and a damnable danger, and I don't use that word lightly. lightly. This is a, 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 a damned shame. It's a damned shame, and I don't mean that as, you know, a cuss word. I mean as a descriptive word. When we put a Jesus shellac over the bones of the empire in our lives and we keep fighting uh, for the empire but calling it a holy war, we are damning people to hell. The, the, the uh, circumstance by which this was sent to me, this post was sent to me, it was a brother in Christ whose heart is broken because it was sent to him by an unbelieving friend who was saying, is this the Christ? that you serve. It's a damn shame. But it's a danger for all of us. It's something we are all 
capable of because we have grown up in and we are invested in this empire, even if it is hurting us, even if it is killing us. We have this kind of, <laughs> uh, what is that called? That um, syndrome where you start to defend your abuser, Stockholm syndrome. So how do we break out of this? How do we break out of this? How do we stop just being satisfied with a shellacking of Jesus over the empire, the desires of the empire and the values of the empire and us keeping uh, that close to us? Keep serving our Caesars, but calling it a holy war. How do we break that tendency? There's a test that will help us. Remember that list I, I, I read you earlier about who Jesus met with, who Jesus valued? Let me, let me just back up here and give you a few highlights. Sick folks, slaves, the demon-possessed, the paralyzed, the tax collector, the blind, the mute, prostitute, unfaithful, just hanging out with those folks, taking meetings with those folks. Do you value who Jesus values? The broken, the unimportant, the pushed out, the marginalized, the oppressed, the losers, the oddballs, the ones that just aren't that productive, the ones that don't, you know, bring a lot to the table, the ones that maybe are lacking in some self-control, the things that the empire values that makes the empire machinery work, um, uh, those weren't the people that Jesus hung out with or, or sought out. It doesn't mean he didn't love them. It just means you gotta, he had different values that he was trying to put forward in his kingdom. What the centurion learned at the foot of the cross is this. The values of the kingdom are reflected in who the king values. So you're going to have to learn what it means to value who the new king values. And that's going to be different than those that the old Caesars value. And that is tough. It goes against our instincts. But that's how we break out of this Jesus shellac religion that we've been given in America. Now, sadly, we don't get to see what happens to the centurion. I wish we did. What happens next with him? I don't know. The truth is, is that now his life has come to a crossroads. He's bore witness to a new reality, and he can't go back. The kingdoms of this world are coming to an end. This is the substance of his statement. Truly, this is the king. This is the, the son of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is the king. Caesar's not the king. What a revelation for him. The world is being set to rights now. I thought it was set to rights, but I had it upside down. Now it's being set to rights again. Shalom is being reestablished again. It's being put under new management. 
The way of the kingdoms of this world is leading me to death. Even if it feels like victory, even if it feels so uh, uh, successful, the way of the kingdoms of this world lead to death, but the way of Jesus is the way of life. So the question for the centurion is much the same as it is for you and I today. Will we take Jesus seriously as the king? If we take him seriously, then that means we will take seriously the people that he took seriously while he was here. And we were going to find, we do that, that those are not the people that the empire takes seriously. The empire that we have grown up in and that we are deeply invested in has no use for them. They're irrelevant. They're unqualified. It's the same thing they thought about Jesus. I think that's all I have to say about that. Brothers and sisters, we have much to consider in these days. God is calling the church to account. He's calling us to account. He's calling us to take Jesus seriously. He's calling us to let loose of our Caesars, let loose of our idols. He's calling us to become people of peace and not just say we're people of peace. He's calling us to have an equality or, 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 or a, a confluence, a, uh, an agreement between what we believe and what we do. This is a time of reckoning for the church. And one of the ways that we can test ourselves and make sure we're walking in the right direction because these are confusing days is to take a look at those who Jesus cared for, those who Jesus loved, those who Jesus pursued, those who Jesus valued, and to value those people ourselves. God bless you, city. Love you. See you soon.